0: All right, we are back. I was ragging on the tech industry. So much more to say about this. And in this regard, I'm reminded of a guy I heard on the radio talking about how it was, a, it was this American Life segment. He was talking about his personal deficiencies, and he admitted that he, he really didn't like people. And um, he added, though, that this is why he had a problem with racists. He noted that <laughs> there are so many reasons to dislike people, and they're going to go with color, and there are so many reasons to dislike what tech is doing to us. And, and yes, of course it makes our life better. It, of course it does all these wonderful things, and it, it, there's no denying that we're putting up with some of this nonsense because of the wonderful things the Internet can do for us. On the other hand, when they ground all of the Delta Airlines flights around the world for mysterious reasons having to do with their computers... You start to wonder, and I had a friend of mine talk to me recently about going for a ride up to Yosemite with a seven-year-old. Actually, I could mention his name. He was formerly almost a regular on this program when we first started. It was Dr. Tony Held, formerly of UC Davis. Dr. Tony mentioned uh, this trip where he went up to go visit one of his, what, one of what is surely one of the most beautiful spots in California, if, if not the world. They went along with a seven-year-old. At least a seven-year-old was in the back of the car watching a Disney, Disney movie. He apparently watched the same Disney movie four times, and when they got to Yosemite, the site of this great, magnificent, magnificent natural scenery, he had no interest. He wanted to keep watching the movies. Now, we can't really blame on the tech industry because this is, this is motion picture, this is television, this is a combination, but putting it in your car, um, I don't know. The evidence seems to be mounting that the youth of this country... I don't mean just seven-year-olds. I mean college college students appear to be a little bit overexposed to such high-tech media. Tony was um, lamenting with me uh, his impression, which certainly dovetailed with mine, that the millennials of today, or the computer generation, the, the the youth of today, I guess you'd say that have been you know brought up with the internet appear to have some notable deficiencies. They t- tend to be very narrow-minded in their thinking, and things are very simple to them. And if you don't agree with them, well, then you're just a jerk, which is not what you expect from university students. Can we blame the web for this? Well, not entirely. It has to do with their education. But I take the position there's something malevolent about what the Internet has done, what, what web access has done. And um, supporting that view is a little piece here from... The Los Angeles Times, author James Campbell, to look, took a look at what I'm talking about here and asks our, you know if Americans are losing our connection to the outdoors. Campbell notes, I don't know what his age was, that as a boy, I, I wandered the woods and fields unsupervised from morning till dark, an experience I would share with Mr. Campbell. But today, according to studies, many children spend less than 30 minutes per week playing outside and as many as seven hours a day glued to TV screens, iPads, and video games. And, unfortunately, their parents are not much better. Adults pass 93% of their lives inside buildings or vehicles. In fact, said Campbell, researchers say a growing number of Americans suffer from biophobia, a fear of the natural world. In children especially, a mere flock of noisy birds or a strong wind can produce surges of anxiety triggering the same fight-or-flight response that evolved to protect us against deadly threats like lions. I don't know about you, but I find this pretty terrifying. And how about this little item from uh, the Sacramento Bee? And yes, we still read the Sacramento Bee because, well, we're still based out of the Sacramento area, and the Bee is a good paper. Of course, in this case, they're reprinting an article by Tara Brahmapur from the Washington Post, but I'll take it. Um, the headline is many millennials say mech about sex, wondering if an app might do the caption on the photograph accompanying the article says Alexandra Wolf says she's, she's a virgin who's too busy for sex the student at George Washington University says she just doesn't have time for hookup culture anyway in the article they note that a study published last Tuesday in the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior finds that younger millennials those born in the 1990s, are more than twice as likely to be sexually inactive in their early 20s than the previous generation, and more likely even than older millennials were at the same time. Recent research also shows that overall millennials, people born between the early 1980s and 2000, have fewer sexual partners than the baby boomers and Generation X immediately preceding them. The piece goes on to note that delaying sex is not necessarily bad. According to experts, they say that being intentional about when to have sex can lead to stronger relationships in the long run. But some experts are concerned that the drop-off reflects the difficulty some young people are having in forming deep romantic connections. They cite possible negative reasons for putting off sex, including pressure to succeed, social lives increasingly conducted on screen, unrealistic expectations of physical perfection encouraged by dating apps and wariness over date rape. The article goes on to note that millennials have been called the most cautious generation. They're the first to grow up with car seats and bike helmets, the first not to be allowed to walk to school or go to the playground alone. They note that this sense of caution sometimes manifests itself as a heightened awareness of emotional pitfalls. And yes... As we reported in this program previously, this generation seems to be obsessed with safe spaces. Man, they want to be safe all the time, which does cause older people to scratch their heads a bit and wonder, you know, what's the deal, guys? You're not going to find safe spaces when you leave the cradle of your college town. And yes, I'm talking to you, some of you students over at UC Davis, just to mention one location. Now, I have to confess, I'm not as familiar with the... Student population of the college town where we're still heard locally on the radio, KZFR up in Chico, to note. But we've been planning to do a uh, field trip up there for some time, and Mr. Miller and I are going to try and do that. And let's just say the month and a half to come. All right, that's something we've been talking about beating a dead horse on, I think. Uh, anyway, let's not beat a dead horse on this, but we it's, it's an ongoing concern of ours, and we're going to keep talking about it. But let's talk about some other perennial favorites of Radio Parallax, shall we? But I have to admit, the first topic here isn't exactly off the subject we've been just talking about. But according to the New York Times, we'll call this stat one of the day. According to the New York Times, on the average, children now get their first smartphones at around age 10. This is down from age 12 in 2012, according to the research firm Influential Central. And yes, I find that a terrifying statistic. (laughs) Which... which I'm somewhat sorry to note dovetails quite well with what I'm going to call statistic number two for today's program, which is that according to Vox.com, more millennials recognize Pikachu than they do Vice President Joe Biden. Yes, folks, when shown images, 98% of millennials polled were able to identify the the yellow Pokemon character. 61% Recognize the Vice President. All right, and what I'm going to call statistic number three, which is equally disturbing, is that two-thirds of Americans cannot pass a basic financial literacy quiz. We talked about uh, this very topic, I think, last year with um, local financial maven Bob Dunham. Or just, he's just a guy from the neighborhood and knows a little bit about this subject. And we talked about you know, things like the ignorance people have about compounding interest. And um, fortune.com, an article by Madeline Farber, started out with the following. Quick, if you take out a $1,000 loan that has a 20% rate, how much do you owe in your first year of interest? Well, the answer, of course, is $200. But if you got that wrong, you're not alone. Indeed, as I just said, to two-thirds of Americans can't pass a basic financial literacy quiz. This comes from a study by the FINRA, which I don't know what that stands for, Investor Education Foundation, but the people at FINRA, but I guess the people at FINRA noted that greater awareness of financial issues was supposed to be one of the silver linings of the financial crisis, but the percentage of Americans able to pass FINRA's five-question test fell to 37% last year, down from 42% in 2009. Apparently the message about the dangers of debt and importance of other financial issues didn't get across. We think this is a pretty sad commentary that uh, we teach people algebra, supposedly, in, uh, in high school, and we don't teach them how to calculate how much they're going to owe on uh, money that's borrowed. Now, some folks were able to figure that out pretty easily, but I think it's probably in spite of the efforts made by math teachers, not because of them. And we've said it before, and we'll say it again, even though this is one of the, probably the most irritating statements that we make on this program on a regular basis in terms of listener responses. (laughs) But the way they teach math in this country should be a felony. I was recently rereading some of the writings of uh, Richard Feynman. He was talking about how uh, when someone in his youth presented a problem to him, which was solve 2x plus 3 equals 11 and Feynman looked at her and said you mean 4 her response was you did that with arithmetic not with the algebra and his response was i don't see there's really a difference but you know what let's jump ship on that topic and and do our good news (laughs) for the week which is that apparently earth's ozone hole is indeed healing at last We would note for the record, as we have in previous incarnations of this program, that back in 1974, two University of California, Irvine, chemists sounded a dire alarm. They said that chlorofluorocarbon chemicals, widely used in everything from aerosol spray bottles to air conditioners, were accumulating in the other upper atmosphere, which had a finite capacity for absorbing these chlorine atoms. And worse, these chlorine atoms would catalyze a reaction which broke down Ozone. They were scoffed at at first. Subsequent studies showed that an ozone hole had developed. This prompted efforts to restrict the production and use of chlorofluorocarbons, and it appears that that reduction is paying off. We would note that despite fierce opposition from the chemical industry, a in 1987 international treaty known as the Montreal Protocol led to the phasing out of CFCs and several other ozone-depleting gases. Now, there still is a hole in the ozone layer. It's especially notable in the southern hemisphere, I guess thanks to global circulation of air, but it isn't as bad as it used to be, which gives some people hope that we may be able to tackle large environmental problems. Well, one can hope so, but the CFC industry isn't quite as powerful as the petrochemical industry in general, which has been a little bit Resistant to the notion that we need to do something about global warming, which, according to the paid spokesman for these people, it's just all a big hoax. Donald Trump thinks it's a hoax. In fact, so did I think just about everybody running for the Republican nomination, which is sad. But um, this is all good news for people worried about getting skin cancer down in Australia, which was, uh, as we as we mentioned, uh, suffering worse from this in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, we're going to have to bring our Australian correspondent, Pamela Taylor, back on to talk, necessarily, not necessarily about that, but about this Australia-related item, which kind of woke me upside the head. Apparently, GPS is no longer working properly in Australia. This is because tectonic movements have pushed the entire continent about five feet north of where it was 20 years ago. But that change is not registered on the GPS because satellite navigation system re- systems rely on fixed lines of longitude and latitude. Now, reportedly, in some cases, Australian drivers trying to obey directions given out by their smartphones have been told to drive into walls or onto sidewalks. Scientists are now trying to recalibrate Australia's place on the Earth's surface, and they say they can develop an algorithm that will keep GPS up to date, even though... Australia is sliding northward at a rate of nearly three inches a year. And no, Mr. Millen, the continent is not trying to flee the ozone hole. And now, I think what we got to do is uh, take a plunge into one of the perennial favorite items of this program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week just this last week for safety nets after an American skydiver, Luke Atkins, completed the first ever successful skydive without a parachute. He plunged 25,000 feet into a large net suspended 20 stories above ground. Said Atkins, if I wasn't nervous, I'd be stupid. Well, we're not 100% positive that his being nervous makes him smart, but... You know, the guy pulled it off. You got to take your hat off to him. Photos I saw of the safety net looked pretty impressive, but it shows what you can do if you engineer things properly. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a few weeks back for authors after researchers at MIT revealed that virtually every story in human literature from King Lear to Hangover is based on one of just six core. Plots, which which purportedly form the building blocks of complex narratives. And no, we can't identify what those six plots are, but we're going to look into this. We were pleased about the comparison between King Lear and Hangover, which is one of our favorite films. Yes, I know it's over the top and it's preposterous and it's full of plot holes, but damn, it's a funny movie. All right, and it was, we'd have to say, an ugly week (laughs) last week for wise choices with the news that a Michigan woman attending a court-ordered class on smart decision-making got arrested while trying to escape through the ceiling of the courthouse women's room. And yes, we think this does cause into question the wisdom of court-ordered classes on smart decision-making. And an item that would have to be described, I think, as something that fits into both an ugly and bad week. For dentists, the federal government last week, apparently dropped its decades-old recommendation on flossing daily, pointing to "quote very weak, very unreliable evidence that it helps prevent tooth decay. I just have to pause here and say, if you use dental tape, which is even better than dental floss, or dental floss after you've brushed your teeth, it seems you will discover that there are generally little pockets of debris which that Tape or floss helps remove. How can it be good to leave that there? Now, Mr. McMillan disagrees with me on this one. He's noted that he's never had a cavity in years and doesn't think there's any advantage to using dental floss. And maybe we have to split hairs on this one. I, I do note that dental floss does not appear to be all that effective in removing stuff that's down between your teeth, but dental tape does. Big difference between the two. Perhaps, but I've never heard a dentist say that, you know, using a water pick was not a good idea, and uh, I don't know, for me, dental tape is somewhere between a water pick and brushing. It seems to me that it should be a part of a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene, which was the phrase they used to use for dentine gum, which was pretty much shown by Ralph Nader and others to be no better than any other kind of gum for keeping your teeth clean. But no, I think this, this, this is idiotic advice. On first blush, this is idiotic advice. And it's not the first time you, dear listener, have been given idiotic advice about hygiene of your head, let's just say. You've been told for years, I know you've been told for years, that you should never go inside your ears and clean them with a Q-tip. But as reported in this program previously, when you poll doctors and nurses as to whether they do it, well, they pretty much all do. And I'm going to get my soapbox one more time to note that having cleaned out probably 3,000 ears, and in 95-plus percent of the cases, these are from people who believe this nonsense, that they should never clean their ears, well, the consequence was their ears filled up with wax. In some cases, their ears filled up with wax, and they couldn't hear right for weeks, In many cases, I mean, in many cases, they couldn't hear right for months because their ears were plugged up with wax, which I cleaned out for them. Yes, I have seen people get into trouble by shoving stuff into their ears in my 30-plus years in medicine. I've seen it, I don't know, a dozen times. So when I cleaned out 3,000 ears by comparison, I have to say that the blanket advice that you should never clean out your ears is insane. We'll let it go with that today. We need to take a break here, but I don't want to end on that. What else we got here? Well, we're not following the Olympics very closely because, well, we just can't. We're a weekly radio show, but perhaps you are. I did note with some amusement that uh, the eight-man crew was being prominently shown on national television. I think because of the special on public television based on the book The Boys on the Boat got people interested in eight-man crew. That was not a bad special and not a bad book. I do note that our connection to the 36 Olympics, my neighbor John Lissack, who will, let's wish him happy birthday, will be 102 on Sunday, Talk to us about his, uh, his experiences in the Berlin Olympics, those same 1936 Olympics. Uh, John did not have the support that the University of Washington team did. And uh, believe it or not, he went all the way to Germany, was not able to bring his equipment with him. The Germans then supplied him with equipment, which was not what he was used to, and I think contributed to his inability to medal. But, you know, finishing seventh in the Olympics ain't a bad thing. Good God, being on the Olympic team. But they did point out in both the book and the special that, you know, the Germans, uh, contrary to anybody's ability to understand, took the number one seeded team, the Americans, and the number-two-seeded team, the British, and gave them crappy lanes. It turned out the favored lanes were given, oddly enough, to Germany and Italy, the two Axis powers. In spite of that fact, the Americans were able to win the gold, uh, You know, but the deck had been stacked against them as the deck had been stacked against John. But anyway, we'll try and talk more about the Olympics, a little a bit about them. And, and we should probably have John come back on uh, because, you know, we, we have gone for the octogenarians and nonogenarians um, on this program on a regular basis because there's so much you can learn from someone who's 80 and 90. And we dare say someone who's a centenarian, someone who's 102, has got something to tell you as well. But uh, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll have more to talk about in segment three, so don't go away.